Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, I'm going to take this opportunity to do the Parsha. It's Thursday, I have a little time, the summer's a little more time, uh, which is Pinchas this week, Parsha's Pinchas, uh, in which you have hmm, a whole bunch of different themes, very interesting ones, uh, always. I'm not talking about the Carbonus, I'm sure people can do stuff with the Carbonus, but I'm not referring to that. First of all, you got the stories I mentioned last time. This is an uncomfortable uh, Parsha as far as zealotry is concerned, because do you approve of what Pinchas does? Is it okay to take the law in your own hands? Uh, in this case, the answer is yes. God specifically says, you know, So God says, I approve of what Pinchas did, and I give him a reward of eternal priesthood. But you can always play it two ways, and the Mephar different Mepharshim do. You can either say it's a positive or it's a negative. I'll give you an example. You can say, be like Pinchas. After all, God rewarded him by saying, shalom. Alternatively, you could say, don't be like Pinchas. Pinchas is a special case. God said, but God doesn't say to you, so Pinchas, who did everything super without any uh, personal feelings whatsoever, and he was ready to die. That's the meaning, you know, he went and killed the Zimri in the middle of the tribe of Shimon. So basically, he said like this, I'm going to give him my life for Kiddush Hashem. I'll take him down like Samson and the Philistines. I'll take him down, I'm Thomas Zimri, and the others, and if they kill me, who cares? Okay. So that's not Stam, a Kanoi in the Velterine. That's not a zealot. Uh, most of the zealots stand from afar and throw bricks at the passing cars on Shabbos, and nothing can happen to them, you know. They'll burn a flag or something, but nothing can happen to them. That's not a zealot. A zealot means where you literally are prepared to be mo serenefish, peshuta kamashmo. So then you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. You put your own body on the line. Okay. So then maybe that's a kind of, that's a that's a, an appropriate zealotry. But if you don't have that sort of readiness to sacrifice, then you're just a drake up and uh, the and, and you're a kind of in the velter. I mean, a pain in the neck, and we don't like that. So, you know, you can play it this way, you can play it that way, and the Mepharshim down the ages line up with the different groups. Uh, whether they write approvingly what Pinchas did, or less approvingly, let me explain. The Jewish tradition is a legalistic one. The books we have are from people called rabbis. Rabbis are people involved with law. People involved with law are focused and obsessed on law, and that's who we are as a culture, as a nation, as the Gemara. It's all about law, due process, uh, you know, getting things right. A basin can't convict somebody unless you have the exact, uh, you know, uh, amount of uh, evidence, and it can be upslugged. Anybody who knows a little bit about the Gemara knows we are a due process culture, and it's very difficult to get a conviction under Talmudic law, which is a sign, by the way, of an advanced culture. Uh, America also. It's hard to get a conviction unless you get very solid proof. And then here comes somebody, Stam the Velteran, who says, I'm going to take the law my own hands, kill this a guy, Zimri ben Salop, and I don't care what anybody says. So you're violating due process, you're, violating, you're taking law in your own hands, you're killing the system of law. Because guess what? If you can shoot somebody that you don't like because you think he's doing something wrong, I can too, and my neighbor can too. And next thing you know, 
You got a Hefker up. You got like East Baltimore. Everybody shooting everybody, uh, you know, in drug wars. So is that what you want? The answer is negative. You don't want that. So that the Zimri, uh, I'm sorry, the Pilchas do the right thing? You see, it gets tricky. Again, in this particular case, he certainly did the right thing because the Rabbani Shalom goes to the trouble of putting words in the Chumash to remember down the ages that the God said, I approve what Pinchas did. He did the right thing. But that doesn't necessarily play over that you should do it. On the other hand, you could say, Cats, you're splitting hairs. Pinchas was a Kanoi. He saved the situation. And he did save the situation. See, the Pasuk says, if not for Pinchas taking this violent act, a lot more than 24,000 would have perished with the Benos Moab baby. And uh, therefore, he's a, mo- a role model. Many years ago, when uh, Baruch Goldstein shot those people in Hebron, I think, 1995, thereabouts, uh, you know, ta- anybody old enough to remember what I'm talking about? Well, a, a Jewish guy in the Kiryat Abba went wild, he went to a mosque and mowed down a whole bunch of Muslims, and he's a Pinchas. He's a Pinchas. And I remember, everybody's horrified, because he just went and shot people in the back. And I had a student of mine who was in Israel that year, and he came back and he brought me a book, and it was something like Kedushas Hanakoma, some name like that. I have it somewhere. Oh no, Baruch Hagever, that's what it's called. The Baruch was a Gever, this guy Goldstein. And it was all about the beauty of Kanoz. I mean, that article's from Shtachim rabbis, you know, uh, Kippas Ruga rabbis approve of what he was doing. And the greatness of revenge and all the rest of it. It's kind of weird. On the other hand, the Pinchas story does leave me with a funny legacy. Am I supposed to take executive action in my own hands? When I see something do, by doing something wrong, uh, is that right? And the rule is, halacha main morin meaning if you have to ask a shallow, you're not allowed to do it, which is a crazy law. You understand? Know if you want to know what's the right thing to do, if you ask that shallow, you're not the right kind of kanoi, you can't do it. If you don't ask a shallow, you just do it, then it's the right thing to, to do or not, depending on the situation. So I just spent two, three minutes here giving you a confused account of how the Jewish tradition regards the Pinchas act as, as, in terms of being a precedent for uh, uh, copying him and imitating him. And that indeed is the, is, is the situation, my friends. The Parsha Pinchas leaves us with a very ambiguous kind of legacy as to whether we should be like Pinchas's or not. But if you want the PC version, Pinchas had passion for the Torah, and the Judaism doesn't survive without passion. He took it like a, a real extreme. But if he didn't feel strongly enough about it, let's put it this way. When you living in Baltimore, New York, anywhere else, you see a next-door neighbor or people down the street driving on Shabbos, are you passionate about it? Do you want to do like a Pinchas? Or do you say, nah, you know, it's not me, it's not Nogea, I can't change people's minds. So then you lack that uh, passion. On the other hand, if you have the passion, then you're going to stand and scream, Shabbos, Shabbos. But is that going to work in America? You see how complicated it is? It's, it's, it's not simple. So the Parshish Pinchas is very fascinating in this regard. Because it raises the issue of kanaos, but it doesn't give gedarim. It doesn't say when and where you're supposed to do it. And by the way, it it, it implies that Moshe and the elders were angry at him. Uh, I'll say it again. It's, it sounds like Moshe and the elders disapproved. Because that's exactly why Hashem has to say. How's the parsha start? Doesn't it, I don't have it in front of me. Doesn't say that Hashem El Moshe Lemur Pinchas Ben Elizabeth if God had to speak to Moshe, you know, what does Vayidaber mean? Loshen Kosha, God had to speak harshly. So it implies, at least to me, that Pinchas killed this guy, the plague stopped, 
Moshe was angry at him. Who gave you the right to kill this guy without consulting us? And then Hashem like barks at Moshe and says, "By Daber Hashem, Moshe Lemor." Hashem speaks harshly to Moshe and says, "Leave Pinchas alone." Heishiv is Chamosi al Bnei Yisrael, Belochi Lisa Bnei Yisrael. Thus, Pinchas did the right thing, and you did the wrong thing. You Moshe and the elders, you did the wrong thing because you didn't stop what was going on with the Benos Moav, which is a tough thing to stop. And this guy Pinchas did. So leave him alone. That's uh, quite a dramatic scene you have at the beginning of the parsha, and uh, it says, "Vahaisa lo zaro." The Pinchas gets the priesthood, gets the Kohen Gadol job. And I guess Moshe must have said, okay, you know, if Hashem says it, uh, that's the way it goes, right? But uh, Moshe was surprised, because Moshe, generally speaking, his leadership style was not that type, to go and shoot down or suppress the, uh, you know, the ones who are doing something wrong. He got angry, as I spoke about last week or two weeks ago, but he didn't take that kind of executive action, and Pinchas, of course, did. And what's really funny is that Cohen Gadol is not supposed to be a violent person. You all know those Mishnahs that say that the, um, oh, what is it, how's it go? That the uh, Mizbeach is not supposed to be made of uh, sword material. It's uh, not a place for killing, it's a place for peace. And uh, things of war are not appropriate based on Migdash, etc., etc. A lot of those types of Mishnahs and Ghazals and Tumid and places like that. Uh, and here, uh, the man who uh, killed everybody, uh, or killed Zimri, uh, is named Cohen Gadol, or his children should be. I mean, he gets the priesthood. It's, asso- it's associated with 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 um, with uh, the temple service. And I thought the violence doesn't go together with the temple service, unless you say there's a time and a place for everything. And in this particular situation, by killing the perpetrator and the leader, he actually saved a lot of other lives, and that ultimately was a peaceful uh, act. But it's it's complicated. It's a little confused, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, that's one piece of thought you can wrap yourself around in Parshat Pinchas. Then you have the story of the war against Midian, because right after that, God says to Moshe, I really hate what the uh, Midianite girls did, uh, and go kill them, make a war. Uh, how's it go? Um, uh, how's it go? That's the puzzle, I think. Uh, go kill, lead a war against Midian of revenge. His vengeance, okay? And uh, and then you die. So this is near the end of the life of Moshe. One more thing you have to do before you die is take a war of vengeance on Midian. Now notice, there was no war of vengeance. Uh, I made this observation yesterday somewhere. No war of vengeance against Ammon, Moab, uh, I don't know, Edom, uh, Egypt. <laughs> doesn't even say go make a war of vengeance against Amalek exactly, does it? So, uh, but Midian, yes. And the answer, it seems, is, God said, I really hate them. They came with under, they violated the rules of war. They used girls, <laughs> right? Uh, which is cheating. If they come at you like a man in a regular battle, no, so, you know, life is full of wars. We win, they win, but at least it's straight up the front. But as we all know, the Benos Mov, the Benos Midian, uh, cheated. <laughs> they appealed to the uh, Tivas, of the soldiers who collapsed like a house of cards. That's the big scandal. Uh, here we are in the 40th year, as I said last week. And Moshe trained all these people and gave them all the and all the rest. And then they saw two Midianite girls, and that's the end of it. Boom. You know, they saw the Benos Moab, boom. And Hashem's very angry at that. And therefore, what he's saying is, the, uh, it seems to me anyway, what he's saying is, um, they set a bad example. If you don't go out and, and launch a war of revenge against them, uh, then other nations will do the same thing. Every 
a Gaisha group out there will throw their girls at you and the Jews will go down because that's like we're helpless against that kind of a challenge. Uh, we certainly are helpless against this challenge in America today. Do you not agree? Uh, you know, the Benos Moab, the Benos Midian, it's a bummer. That's what's destroying, uh, whether we like it or not, that's destroying the American Jewish community. So, in this case, since Midian showed a weak spot in the Jewish defenses, uh, take them out. Go and kill them. And by the way, there's a savage war that I think in next week's parasha or Matas or Masay, it's going to I mean, it's really savage war because they're going to kill everybody and come back with women captives, young girls. And Moses is going to say, why do you leave the young girls? You have to kill them too. And, you know, it's, it's not an easy one to defend in front of your liberal colleagues. Uh, the war against Midian it is a bloody business. Besides the Kosher's questions of the uh, Kalim. Now, uh, why is it such a bloody war? You go and use underhanded methods against us. Uh, we will take a bloody vengeance on you. It won't be a pretty sight. And uh, listen, Hashem's saying it. So he knows what he's talking about. So he said, Nikom, You better hit them hard. So teach abject lessons so other nations won't be uh, tempted to uh, repeat the example of the Benos Midian. Which is very interesting, because like I said before, you don't find that God commands to make a war against the Philistines, or that sort of thing, but he does against the Dominion. And it's a war of Nekoma. Uh, what did the Midianites do to us? They didn't attack us. Yeah, but they attack you in a different way. They attack you, like I say, uh, using your weak spot. And uh, listen, uh, boys are boys and girls are girls, and uh, there's always going to be a weak spot. And so... Uh, consider this in the light of contemporary events uh, when we're under constant attack from the Benos Midian. But how do you take it ready? You, you can't go do an, a, a war in the comma today. So what are you supposed to do? It's, it's, it's very thought-provoking, at least in my mind. It's very thought-provoking because we don't have a real defense against this. That's why the front community, all they can do is, a huddle, uh, you know, um, what's the right word? Huddle in isolationism. Try to live in a separate neighborhood, not have contact with anybody to the degree possible. Uh, certainly not socialization with others, and certainly across gender lines, you know, boys and girls, uh, but it's part of life, and then if you're out in the world, you know, Bishlam, if you're a Rebbe in Yeshiva somewhere, so you only hang around Jews, but if you're out in the regular world, you interact with people of all kinds all the time, so what are you supposed to do? Uh, you know, uh, repeat the Benos Midian story, make a war of revenge, it's, uh, once again, the Parsha, whether in the case of zealotry or in the case of revenge, uh, raises very interesting questions to us who live in the, in this world today. Uh, it's kind of relevant in that regard, but you can't repeat what they did in the time of the Bible. So what exactly are you supposed to do? I throw those ideas at you. The other thing that occurred to me, uh, again, I was talking about with some people yesterday, ladies' class, was uh, you also have a very interesting story of the daughters of Tzalafchad, uh, these loan sharks, I mean, these uh, real estate sharks, because uh, why do I say that? Uh, there's a famous mission about Avastor, maybe some people remember, that the Benos Slavchad Natlu Arba Chalak, Shlosha Chalak Benachla, meaning that uh, they came across like Shirley Temple, you know, we're poor little girls over here, uh, no father, uh, no no brothers, and uh, could you please let us uh, uh, get our claim for real estate accepted? Once Moshe did, then they brought in their lawyers. We get a chalik for our father, they get a chalik for their uncle, I think it was, uh, they get a, the father was a bachor, so they get a pishnayim, meaning it's like a, 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 a clever person. Once you get your claim accepted, then they had two claims and three claims and four claims, and they got a ton of real estate. That's the point. Uh, so dumb they were not. 
how clever they were. And what's the end of the story? You know, they say to Moshe, what should happen over here? I love this story because Moshe says, Imdu I wish I could like that. Moshe says, wait a minute. I have my uh, cell phone. I'll find out from God what the answer is. <laughs> you know, some people have uh, a cell phone to their Rebbe or something like that. You know, you call up. Uh, I have a big shiloh over here. What do I do? Uh, what I was going to do is say, you know, call her Moshe Feinstein or something like that. Uh, Moshe could do even better. The uh, Beno Slavik ask a Shaila, and Moshe goes, I'll get back to you in a minute. I'll ask Hashem what, what the answer is. Uh, I would like to be able to ask God and get an answer. And indeed, you know, if you're a level of Moshe Bain, that's unique, of course. And, what, and God answers, and what does God answer? He says, accept their claim. You know, Cain, Beno Slavik, Dovros. You know, they, they got a point. So they got their claim validated by the highest authority, conceivable. And then they made their move, and they said, well, but once our claim is accepted, you know, our father was a Bechor, and he was also the to Mitzrayim, and he get land for this, land for that. And so they kind of cleaned up on the real estate, but the Chazal always liked them. It's very interesting. The Chazal have attitude that, you know, these aren't uppity women or something like that, but they always said they were Tzidkanios and Tzenuos. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Why, why do the rabbis in the Talmud always have a soft spot for the Benoit Slavchad? And the answer is, this is this is so Jewish, you know it's true. Uh, what's the story of Moshe and the Jews one in the desert? They're always borching, they're always complaining. Let's go back to Egypt. Even in the 40th year, if you read the Midrashim, you know, the half the tribes uh, launched a, 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 a retreat back to Egypt and the other half of the tribes had to go and have a civil war with them. A civil war in which thousands were killed to force the other six tribes that keep going on the way to Israel and not turn back to Egypt. So every bit along the way, even for 40 years, Moshe Ben had nothing but Saurus and Vaitog, like a rabbi in a show with Balabatim. He had a drum crazy, well, kind of Mishagasim. And they were always saying, eh, we'll never see Israel. What did Dustin and Avirim say to Moshe? You know, Afelers, Zavas, Batitan, all the beautiful land you promised us with vineyards, we've never seen it. We never will see it. You're a liar. You're making the whole thing up. This is what they drove Moshe crazy with. Now, Jews are like that. And then come these girls. Well, they weren't girls. They were actually uh, middle-aged women. And they tell Moshe like this. He says, listen, we'd like to get our claims to Israel registered. And once they do that, what does that mean? All the men started saying like this, wait, if, you know, like Jews in a shul talk about a real estate deal. Oh, if you're interested in buying that neighborhood, I am too. Oh, the Menoslav of what Chalakim Nars? Wait a minute. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I want my share. As a matter of fact, I want a peach naim. I want a peach losha. My uncle was this. My cousin was that. I want land also. By stimulating the interest in real estate in Israeli real estate, they turned a lot of hearts around. Instead of people saying, let's go back to Egypt, they start focusing on, oh, yes, yes, let's get more land in Israel. And that helped Moshe move them forward in the last months of his life to get to the promised land. So it's like Jews, they appeal to the real estate apes of horror of the Jewish people. It's just so true. I mean, you look around, even now it's like that. And you know the old line, there never was a piece of land that some Jew didn't pass by and say, you know, I could have had that for half the price. So here they see Beno Slavon talking about the land. They were mechavev. They made the land of Israel positive and beloved on the other Jews because once they start talking about their claims then everybody starts thinking in terms of their claims 
So they use the Yetzirah to get the Jews to go to Eretz Yisrael. There is nothing more powerful out there than the Yetzirah. The whole trick in life is to be able to channel the Yetzirah into the right direction so that it moves you to uh, you know, do things you're supposed to do. Believe me, when you do something, especially a mitzvah with the Yetzirah behind it, you do with a with a passion. If you do it just totally with the Yetzirah, it's not, you know, you just uh, it's an obligation. Aren't too many saints walking among us. I know a few. But most of the people do the mitzvah, you do the mitzvah. Uh, so the Benos Chava comes out very interesting. I said before, it's not me and the Gemara, they say, that they're all over 40. So this is actually a very interesting story. These were singles. I'm serious. These were single women uh, who obviously never got married. Oh, obviously, it seems to me they never got married because they had no family. You know, the father died and they had no brothers. And probably in those days, marriages were all economic, uh, as they are today, you know, although we go through the uh, functions of saying it's a love marriage, really. You see, rich marries rich, middle marries middle, and all that sort of thing. After all, it's said and done. But uh, they were these girls, and uh, they had no luck with Shaduchim because uh, you know, they had no property and no land, and things like that. And their father died, you know, uh, along the way. Some said he was the Makosha Chaitim. Who knows who he was? We don't know. Uh, and then, and like I said before, years went by. It's a tragedy. I mean, consider what I just told you. 600,000 men, another 600,000 women and all that marching through the desert. What was the Shidduch situation <laughs> back in the time of Moshe and the others? That's just a very nice question. Uh, look here. <laughs> Must have been a lot of hawking going on. They're, the Jews are, are wandering by themselves through a desert. They're surrounded by Ananiah covered. Supposed to be cut off from the Goyim. Uh, they get the Mun. They get the Be'er. They're not, in other words, they don't have to work for a living. What do you do all day long? What do you do during Moshe Rabbeinu's all day long? So if you're the learning type, you sit and learn from Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron and none of them, it's Gavaldic. And what if you're not the learning type? I mean, seriously, you think every single Jew who left Egypt was the learning type? Uh, where does it say that? Every single Jew left Egypt was automatically the type of person who says, you know, uh, There's a lot of people who don't say A lot of people say like this. You know, They don't say So, uh, what do these Jews do? First of all, we can tell from the Midrashim there's a lot of hacking and lashon hard going on because they're always complaining about Moshe Menu. It's not me talking. I'm talking about the Midrash. Don't 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 blame me. You don't see Moshe Mendes stealing and this and that. And when did these conversations happen? The answer is, they're in the desert. They're doing nothing all day long. They're surrounded by all these amazing sites, but they're used to these sites. And, uh, you know, you talk. Another thing must have been going on was uh, crazy Shaduchim, right? I mean, you know, Shadchan must have been uh, quite a business because uh, people are born over the course of uh, 40 years in the desert and grow up. And who marries who and how marries how? That must have been quite a situation. Remember they say about our own that he was a family counselor. Family counselor of what? You know, maybe the old couples, maybe the new couples. Maybe Aaron was a big advisor on the Shaduchim situation. Here's a speech that somebody can give at a Shatran convention or a singles convention. What was Aaron doing and people like him during the 40 years? In the, what's the Shidduch situation? And the answer is, like today, some people win in the Shidduch situation. Some people get the short end of the stick in the Shidduch situation. The Benos Slavchad we're told, at least the Chazal say, uh, got the short end of the stick. And this is an aspect I don't think anybody thinks about. And they didn't get married. And it's terrible. 
and years go by in the desert, another decade, another decade, and they, uh, and they didn't get married. And now Moshe Rabbeinu is about to die. And then they make their move. And they say, Avinu meis midbar, karach, and give us some land. And the Rabbani Shalom said, give them some land. And not only that, they ended up, like the Mishnah says, with a lot of land relative to who they were. A lot of land. What happened next? All of a sudden, they got shidduch offers. <laughs> right? All of a sudden, people heard like this. Oh, she hit the jackpot. You know, she got a, a, a bequest. She got a, a will. You know, somebody left her money. Or in this case, she got land that's coming because land was wealth in the old days. And what's the next thing you hear over here? Everybody wants to marry them. What a stinking world it is. Everybody wants to marry them. How do I know everybody wants to marry them? Because you're going to see in next week's Parsha, not this week, next week's Parsha, that Hashem has to say they can marry, but they have to marry within their tribe. You remember that? You're, I'm sure you remember that. You know, uh, They can marry whoever they want. They can marry in their tribe. So why does that have to... Because the land shouldn't move from one shape to another. Why does he have to tell you they shouldn't marry out of the tribe? The answer is simple. Once people heard, oh, Hashem said that the Beno Slavchad are Tzodkos, are right, uh, and they got land, they got a land, land coming in there. I want to marry that girl. Uh, you know, the, every opportunist, you know, the, every, uh, you know, uh, gigolo out there and all the 12 tribes are going now want to marry the Beno Slavchad. And from being in a situation where nobody was interested in marrying them to being in a situation where they're overloaded on Salyu at Sinai, you know, everybody wants to go out with you, must have been a, quite an experience. And in that context, Hashem says, well, you've got a ton of suitors, you have a ton of proposals, uh, but only keep it in the tribe. And so they ended up marrying Livnei Dodin, they married cousins. Uh, now think about this. The Gemara says the youngest one was 40, so that means you're talking about a group of girls, I assume, were like in their 40s. Uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, people like that now. And they got married, and apparently they lived happily ever after. If they're the smart types that come across as the real estate agents that the Mishnah describes, I said this yesterday, I'm pretty sure they got, first of all, let's put it this way, they got to pick who they marry, because they weren't some young girl that the father's giving them off to some, uh, you know, some suitor in a way that, that suits the parents. These were uh, grown, mature women who made their own life partner situations, and chances are they ran the show. <laughs> no, it's like, it's, I'll marry you and you get the land, but on the following conditions, X, Y, and Z. And, uh, and that's what happened. Now, um, pretty soon, it's going to be Tisha B'Av, and after it will be Tubav, which is my anniversary, actually. And Tubav, what does it say? That after the generation of Milosofka, they can marry across tribes. You know? Which means that in the Moshe time, as a result of Milosofka's situation, all the tribes had to be, you can only marry in the tribe, in order to avoid real estate wars. You know, that a girl who's an heiress from this tribe will marry a guy from that tribe. So you shouldn't have real estate wars. That land from one tribe ends up in the possession of land of another tribe. But the Benos Chavchad must have been pretty doggone cynical. Because here's a girl who's 45, and, you know, and you're surrounded by Jews. It's not like she was in a Idaho where there's no Shadukim. He's in the middle of the Jewish desert. She couldn't find the Shadukh because, as far as people know, she doesn't have any land. Must have been terrible. I'm not making fun of this. I'm doing very seriously. Must have been terrible. And then all of a sudden, Hashem said, I guess, give them all the land of their father and uncle, all the rest of it. And then they married their cousin. The cousin was always there all the time. What a cynical situation. You know, I've been eligible. The boy, well, listen, we know life is like that. Sometimes you see a guy and a girl, and you see it a lot. And they're growing up in the same town. The truth of the matter is, I guess they could go out now. They could go out now, and sometimes if they wise up, 
Maybe they're in their 40s and they say, you know, let's get married now. And you say, well, you could have done it 20 years ago. Ain't a chanami, but better late than never. And that's what happened to the Venezuelan because they married their cousins. So basically, they were in the marriage market all the time, and the cousins knew who they were, but they didn't make a move until they got land. Uh, I know you're all shocked to hear that Shaduchim have to do with money, but it's as old as the Bible, and therefore the Parsha of the Week is always the Parsha of the Week. With that note, I wish you a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.